Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Hello, I'm Hannah Schultz. Welcome back to Share Public Health series on rural health. I'm excited you're joining me. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to do so, but don't worry if you haven't. We're going to kick off today's episode talking with Heather Lujano. Heather is a social worker and works in the Washington Community Schools in Southeast Iowa. She has focused a lot of her life and career on working with and supporting immigrants. She shares her experience studying in Mexico and how formative those years were in shaping her work. My first experience as a minority was when I traveled to Mexico, and that was actually through a college study program. And so I stayed for several months and had lots of different experiences that I had never had in my entire life before. And so I think that particular experience that I had, um, which happened in 1990, was something that really changed me as a person. It changed my view. It changed what I was concerned about or interested in um, and what I paid attention to. So then having that experience of being a minority, I came back to Iowa and looked for work, um, particularly um, with programs that work directly with immigrants. In this case, we were talking about Spanish speaking immigrants in the state. And so I began working with Proteus and um, I was going out into migrant camps. Um, Sometimes we'd set up our little office on a blanket with some coolers there to sit on and chat with people when they were on a break. We'd go a lot in the evenings because of their long work hours. But um, with Proteus, I was doing outreach in that way, getting to know people, trying to find out their needs and seeing how the programs we had available here might assist them. Then I went back to Mexico and lived there for maybe four or five years. Um, And I completed my BA during that time as well, which was in Latin American studies or is in Latin American studies. I do still have it. They haven't rescinded it yet. (laughs) Anyway, and so, but I didn't have any language, but I did speak fluently by that time. But the first time I went to Mexico, I spoke no Spanish whatsoever, which really was something that changed, I think, my experience because I think that to me was like the the bucket of cold water. Like, oh my goodness, I know nothing. I can't even ask for what I really want at this store or restaurant. I don't know how to pronounce any words. All this was just something for me. And that was back to my first trip to Mexico. And so then obviously I took Spanish classes while I was there, kept learning, et cetera. Kept learning as I worked with, you know, Spanish speaking people here in the state while my while I worked with Proteus. So my journey has kind of been, I go learn things and then I figure out, you know, what this means to me and how I need to apply that. So 
to make a long story kind of short, I ended up um, coming back to the U.S. and then um, worked. My first job back in the U.S. again was with Proteus, uh, and I was a career development coordinator. So I was working with immigrants trying to assist them in finding a permanent employment opportunity, looking at their family's needs, um, helping them with job applications or in interviews or preparation for those types of things. We did a lot of aptitude testing. And then, so I would have employer contacts and I would be like, oh, I have these people. And it was through the Job Training Partnership Act, which was an incentive for some of the employers. And through that work, actually, I met Tammy Schull, who now is working with Iowa Winds in Mount Pleasant. And she was working at that time at a company. Um, and I had contacted many companies in the area regarding my clients. And some of those contacts are people that I still know and, and work with today, which is amazing. That's how I got to Washington. I came back, worked with Proteus, started meeting people in the area here, and then I heard about a position with the Washington schools. So I applied for it and that was actually a rural health access grant. And so that was in 1996 that I was hired by the Washington schools on a three-year grant. Okay, 24 years later, I'm still employed at the Washington schools. And um, so obviously the work that I was doing was something that either I came at a perfect time when they were like, oh my gosh, we don't know anything about this. And here's this person that doesn't fit into any job description that helps us or keeps us from getting sued or whatever. I don't know. Right. But they still have me on. And so in that time from 96 through now, I went back to the University of Iowa, um, got my master's in social work and likely within a couple months, I will be taking my next level of exam to be an independent um, practitioner as well. So that language piece is really important in my story because one of the first things that I worked on then, starting off with the schools here in Washington, um, was trying to find opportunities for people to learn more English. Um, there were just a few interested citizens here in the town that had reached out in some way, shape, or form, or happened to be a neighbor of an immigrant family and, you know, started having more conversations with them or trying to work with them to learn the language. So we had like two or three families that were working with people in their homes, just inviting them to work and practice English. And so then when I started with the schools, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we have facilities. Oh, we have classrooms and let's get this organized. And so one of the first projects that I did um, was helping to bring English adult ESL classes in a more formalized way into the community. So we partnered with Kirkwood Community College and they offered it for free. And the actual first class that happened in Washington happened at Lincoln School here, which is an elementary building in town. And we offered childcare we had Kirkwood providing materials and an instructor. Um, and we had some people in the community that would like bring snacks and it was just a very family friendly thing. Over the years that has morphed into what Kirkwood now offers from their new site, um, which is a, a very structured program. No children are allowed in the building, which I understand, you know, they've got other classes going on and lots of equipment. But that first class actually happened with those partnerships formed with the schools. 
And there's been a lot of groups that I've tried to get started to keep some of these projects going, um, always focusing on how to get participants from the population that we are working with to be part of what we're doing and part of those decisions. So I guess in a sense that's, well, it's leadership development, it's camaraderie, it's collaboration, it's including voices that are the reason that we're here. So Washington is what I would consider to be, well, see, I grew up in Vincent, Iowa. There's like 150 inhabitants, probably if you count people's pets. In my childhood, living there, I seriously thought my mom had like special powers because she was like, what were you doing on the other side of the tracks? And I was like, oh my gosh, it never occurred to me that neighbors were, you know, calling her up and saying, oh, we saw your daughter riding her bike on so-and-so's property, you know? So like that whole rural is a piece of who I am. And so the years that I was in Mexico, living in Mexico City, I mean, those were culture shocks, language shocks, all of that. But I still came back to the rural community. But what Washington is to me is a city because I grew up in, in such a rural place where like my backyard was corn or beans all the time, you know? And so Washington has like big stores and restaurants and all this, but like to some people or me having lived in Mexico city, then coming to Washington, I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's nothing here. Right. It's just a matter of perspective. But Washington, I think is a community that even though I've lived here for 24 years, I'm, I'm new, I'm new here because I don't have roots here necessarily. And I'm not from a family that people know as a family that they've been acquainted with. So I can only imagine how they must feel about some of the immigrant families that have settled out here too, um, that don't maybe look as similar to they, you know, those types of things I think are interesting when we start talking about what's Washington, you know, what's it like? It's just a matter of perspective. My perspective is it's a place that I can usually feel at home in. It's a place that I was happy to raise my children in because of the smaller aspect of it. Um, but there's also challenges, I think, that exist in any community when you have different people from different places coming together. Remember last week when I said we weren't going to define rural? Washington has a bit over 7,000 people. Coming from Mexico City, small town. Coming from Vincent, Iowa, it's a city. As Heather mentioned a moment ago, she spent a lot of time learning language and helping folks in her community learn English. She started several programs and will share some of them with us now. She kicks off talking about a program she was involved in that eventually Kirkwood Community College became a part of. So over the years, like I said, that Kirkwood class has been coming into the Kirkwood umbrella. It is now offered regularly, and, and that's a huge resource for the population I work with. But through that time, I, I really wanted to get, uh, so I had a group of people, like I'm telling you, like kind of people from Washington or who had lived here for 40 years or whatever, or their families were from here working with me and who were interested in helping and reaching out and welcoming people. But we didn't have a lot of people from the population that I was working directly with on a day-to-day -day basis as part of our like idea bank or what's going to work, what do we need? And so I, it was, I think the late nineties, because that was before my kids were born. 
that I started working to try to get a community group that was like mixed populations together, but focusing on specific issues of the Latino community, because this was a growing population. And there were lots of needs, you know, lots of interpretive needs in the community. There's cultural differences, all those types of things. How do people access services? And this also fell in that idea of the rural health. So I was in contact with some, um, you know, large organizations and providers as well, um, trying to figure out how we can problem solve. But what ended up happening is through the Y, we started a group that was called the Comité Latino, uh, which just means Latino committee. So like trying to look at what's going on in our community, who's coming in, what do we need to do? And my main purpose there was to have actual Latinos being part of this group as well. So it's not just a bunch of people from the town coming together and saying, oh, what are we going to do with these Latinos, you know, but like have these joint community conversations through the Comité Latino. What I realized over time was over, I don't know how many years we met, the people involved, it was not the right time in the community for this group to be self-sufficient or be sustained. It could have been sustained and it would end up being our same selves, white people coming to talk about the Latinos. That's not what I wanted. I wanted to have everybody being part of the group and not just some of us, you know? So what ended up happening is I just decided, you know what? I don't think our community is ready for this group yet. I'm out on a limb and that's okay. But I learned a lot through this experience. And so then I focused, I decided, okay, Comité Latino, that was a great experience. I think we worked together a couple of years at least, maybe three. We did a couple events um, that were well attended. You know, we never got to have nonprofit status or whatever because we were under the auspices of the Y, which was fine. But, you know, it was kind of like, okay, we got a few things done. It was interesting. People had some opportunities to exchange and have a positive experience, but this isn't really what people are ready for yet. And so then I started focusing on working with youth in the schools. And so as far as who are these Latino students, what's missing in the schools? If you're Latino, how do you feel at X elementary building, at X high school? Where are your safe places? You know, who are your connections? Are you connected? And so I started just having a time to meet with some of the youth at the middle school and high school during like a study time or whatever just to have conversations. Cause I was like, okay, hey, what's school like for you? You know, and we had all different language abilities. We had some people that didn't even speak Spanish that were Latino. We had people that hardly spoke any English. So these were always bilingual conversations with me facilitating. What I learned from the kids was that um, they felt as in, like they were outsiders. There were sometimes barriers to participate in activities or whatever. So I started working more, helping them and the parents have information like, okay, when are sports physicals offered? What are we doing here? You know, and that type of stuff. And I started um, having the school calendar translated to Spanish every year with resources and that type of thing. But what came out of these conversations with the youth was that they love to hang out and they love to chat in their home language and, you know, so I ended up saying, hey, why don't we form a school group? And it can just, you know, you guys can decide what we're gonna do. 
you guys can decide what's important to you. And so um, that was 1999. And um, the very first group started and the kids decided they wanted to call themselves La Onda, which is like, what's cool and vibing, you know? Um, so La Onda started at Washington High School uh, in 1999. And we had six people in the group besides me. <laughs> so over the years, what has happened is the kids every year decide what their focus is. Okay, what are the projects we want to do this year? Okay, you know, they decide their officers, everything. And over the years, it's opened up to be the, the La Onda Multicultural Group because we, over the years, have had exchange students coming into the community. And those were kids that also, the La Onda kids were like, hey, I know how you feel when you're like feeling like you're not quite in the group. So come to La Onda. You know, we accept all cultures. Anyway, the La Onda group at the high school just celebrated um, their 20th anniversary last December. And we had a lock-in at the school. And we had 32 students there that night. So La Onda has continued. And then the other um, group that over time we had was called Friends and Neighbors of Immigrants. And that was a group, I think it was in the mid 2000s or early 2000s, maybe 2002 or so, where I started again to have this community group. I just felt like, gosh, we need a community group because we are a community, but everybody's off on their own places and people really don't come together just to say, hey, who are we as a community and what do we need, you know? So I had this, okay, I'm going to try a community group again. I just can't let it go. I just felt like it was important. <laughs> and so we started, again, a lot of the same people that were initially involved in Comité Latino as far as the Caucasians involved. And um, we were called at that time Friends and Neighbors of Immigrants. Um, and again, we were trying to get more participation in the Latino community. It's part of our group because... There were raids going on in Postville and other areas. Um, and we were just like, you know, what, what is going on? What do we need to do or consider as a community? Uh, if there is any way, shape or form to be prepared or support each other. And so one of the things that the Friends and Neighbors group did at that time was organize Peace March here in the community. And that occurred on May 1st and I, can't remember the exact year, but I do know that we had like over 500 people participate in that peace march. And we had kids from the La Onda group that decided they wanted to be involved. And so like they borrowed some drums from the school and they were out in front marching and, you know, they had the beat going and people were just peacefully marching to communicate, hey, you know, we want peace. We want to get along. So the peace march, I think, is really important because people from all walks of life came together. You know, all ages, all ethnicities. And um, we wore white. And we had, um, we had some support from community groups, too. Like the Daughters of the American Revolution bought flags for us to give out. Um, we had some elderly people that had made like some swatches of white material that people could tie on their wrist as a bracelet just to include everybody and have more white in our parade or peace march. 
And so those types of things are cool. Things that happen in a rural community that I don't know, maybe more other different things happen in a larger city. But to me, that was really significant. Um, I'm sure, I know it was on the front page of the Gazette and the Des Moines Register, but I just can't remember the year, but it did occur on May 1st. Anyway, so that's Friends and Neighbors of Immigrants, Epoca, <laughs> um, Era. And then um, that group eventually, again, you know, we just, we didn't have that momentum we needed in a sense to keep going. And there's a point where me, I have to recognize my own limitations too and say, okay, is this what I want? Or is this what the community wants? Is this what we need? Are we working together? Am I putting in more energy than everyone else? You know, to truly have it be a community project, we all have to, we all have to give some and we all have to try to collaborate at the same level. And so I have that leader tendency, I know, which I think is a good thing, but it also can be a hindrance because you can be out there too much in front when what you really need to do is step back and walk with the people. And so that brings us, I think, to, to where duo comes in because especially with the Mount Pleasant raid and all of that that happened, um, you know, lots of wrenching things going on in rural communities in Iowa. And again, this same group of people, we come together again. And we're like, okay, what are we doing? You know, what, what does our community need? But this, this was different because from the very start, we had Latino people in our group by our side. And we had all, to the extent that was possible, every meeting was try, we were trying to conduct in two languages. And this is the idea of duo, like duality, but also we are one. And then we had this brilliant idea from one of our group members, duo, the word is the acronym of do unto others. And so then we started focusing on that idea of just like the golden rule, treating other people how you want to be treated. And we don't care your economic status, your race, your culture, ethnicity. We just want to know that we are compassionate individuals and we want to connect, you know. So this is what duo is. And initially, again, we started coming together because of the raids and the scare tactics, maybe from political entities or whatever, social media and everything, the community was very concerned and wanting to figure out, you know, could something like this happen here? You know, what's the situation? So Duo really started working on listening to the community and trying to bring together resources that might be helpful. And I do have to say, I mean, we just, we, we are a nonprofit right now. We incorporated in March of 2019, but we are still just in the fledgling stages. Um, and maybe that's just what good work is like. You know, you always feel like you're just getting started. <laughs> but, you know, it's invigorating, but it's also got some challenges. So we have a good core group. And we obviously are trying to live out the the mission of our group. And always being considerate 
of cultures and languages and and also um you know having that that group consensus you know and and everybody's an equal voice at the table and i think that really is what duo is about heather makes a really important point about timing for some of us who like to make things happen and cross things off the list it can be so frustrating when things that seem obvious and important take time. Heather has been persistent in getting these groups off the ground and trusted the community for when it was and wasn't the best time. One of the things I really love about the guests we've got on today's episode is the decades-long perspective they have of their communities. Communities evolve over the years, and the distance and time our guests today have is really enlightening. We're going to head a few miles up the road now to Kelowna, Iowa, to talk with Mary Swander. Mary was the Poet Laureate of Iowa from 2009 to 2019, has an arts nonprofit called Ag Arts, produces her own podcast called Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and is an excellent storyteller. Mary has lived outside of Kelowna, Iowa for about 30 years. She tells us a bit about what she sees as the strengths of her community. Though she is an Amish, she spent about half of her life living in the largest Amish community west of the Mississippi. The biggest strength is that sense of community. One of the reasons I love living here is because I've got real neighbors. First of all, they're small farms. And so I can look out my window and see, you know, the homestead farmhouses of uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different farms. I mean, I'm on top of a hill, but that's really an that's really an oddity. I mean, people that are used to, you know, the what the landscape, the rural landscape, is becoming a uh, a vista of you know ten thousand acre farms is really unusual to look out one's window and see eight different eight, eight different farms. I love like we have a neighborhood picnic, we have fish fries, we have little gift exchange at Christmas time. And my absolute favorite thing is sometime during Christmas week, the Amish come around caroling. You know, we have these old fashioned things that really, really build connection and community. I mean, you're standing there and there are three generations and one family singing in harmony in front of you. And you really think can't get any better than this. The young people gone and established two other settlements in Iowa, in southern Iowa, where the Amish are really growing in southern Iowa. And, uh, you know, and they'll, they still, they'll get in their horse and buggies and they'll drive all the way to Sigourney. I mean, it's amazing to me, you know, which is what, I don't know, 30 miles away. So that would take an entire day. And so you, you watch that form of life play out in front of you and it's it's um it's historical of course because that's the way everybody used to live but it's also um awe-inspiring because you think you know we would just not have the patience for that and our minds are like you know going at, at much higher speed than we could tolerate a whole day in a horse and buggy we did we couldn't do it and then you also see um this sense of teamwork in how the Amish build their families. Like they visit all the time. They go back and forth to each other. There's never a 
funeral where they all don't assemble. Um, you know, it's, it's um, a different culture than we're living in, all, even though we're all living here in Iowa. And there's still that ethos of you help your neighbor and you pull together. Like when we, we had the recent derecho, the big storm, we saw that come out. And in, in, in metropolitan areas too, people can't, you know, I, I just saw people in truckloads with their chainsaws in the back of the pickup going to help people. So that's, that's the real area at its best when there's trauma, drama, a problem, and people start pitching in. Mary's move to Kelowna was somewhat unplanned. She talks a bit about what it was like moving to her home and the new experiences she's had as a result. On one of my trips down here, I'm driving by and there's a for sale sign out in front of the schoolhouse. I'm like, oh, that's weird. The Amish are selling their school. And, um, you know, and I'm driving on by. And, and then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be a fun place for somebody to live? And I'm driving on by. And then I'm like, that may be a really fun place for you to live. And so... <laughs> So I turned around and I, um, and it was total whim. And I looked in the windows and, and, and there are nine six foot tall windows because the Amish use natural light. And um, I looked out and I had this beautiful, beautiful vista. And the name of the school is Fairview School. So you have this beautiful view. And it, it turned out to be the most complicated real estate transaction, the history of Iowa, but I eventually bought the schoolhouse and fixed it up uh, to live in. And the Amish thought I was totally whacked. They thought I was totally nuts. They're like, she's going to live in it. Oh my God. What, you know, she's going to live in it. And um, <laughs> um, it's about, it's a hundred years old now. So it had its little creaks and moans, but it's, you know, it's solid. And I put in like a little, I kept it all one room, but I have a little kitchen area and it had a little boys bathroom, a little girls bathroom. So I knocked out the wall and just put a shower in and uh, it's one bathroom. So I had to kind of do some remodeling, but not that much. So I've been very happy here. I just can't tell you how rich it is. There's something interesting that happens every single day, you know, and I, I have like a lot of visitors, you know, and have friends all over the United States and some come and they're like, aren't you bored out there? Don't you get bored? And I said, that, that is the one thing I am not. I am not bored here. Like today, for example, they're making sorghum down right down the road, like three quarters of a mile down the road. There's a North sorghum press and it now runs on, uh, uh, they hook it up to the tractor to move the stone grinding stone around. But when I got first got here, they had a little pony that went around and around and around. It was so incredible. And they go out to into the hill and they dig the clay and they, you know, they have to grind the, the canes and then they press out the juice and then they have to filter the juice through this clay and, and boil it. So they have this huge big boiler with a little whistle on the top. And so all morning I've been hearing them go doot, 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 doot. So you can drive by and if you honk, they'll doot, doot. And um, everybody in the entire, all the Amish in the entire region come with their cane and 
and then they have a, a little system <laughs> where they scratch numbers into the wall of the shed where they do this to keep track of which family brought how much cane and then how that translates into the the jars of molasses that they'll come and pick up i mean it 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 is an agricultural museum it is it is most i mean i mean one day i was looking out the window and i was talking, <laughs> talking to my brother and i'm like I am looking out the window and they're baling hay in those little square bales like we used to make on the farm. And my brother's like, with the twine, with the twine around the bale. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I have not seen that for 50 years. I said, yeah, I know. It's just a, a total blast from the past. And he's like, okay, what's the machinery look like? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, you, know, you don't have to go to living history farms. I've got it right outside my window. So that's that's fascinating. And then, you know, they do use some implements. You know, they can have tractors and, you know, they use horses, but they also have tractors. And they can't use like modern tractors. They can't have a cab and a radio and all that. And so there's a cutoff date of probably, I don't know, 1960 five or so i asked him once i said could you just cut the cab off and they go well yeah but that's a lot of work so they essentially have to get antique tractors and so like different families will know how to fix uh international harvesters or john deers so they'll get they'll try to get like three of those same models and brands and then they'll have spare parts and I have become the the neighborhood online implement dealer because those th <laughs> the those used to be advertised, you know, like in the back of Iowa Farmer Today or something like that. But now most of it's online, and you know they don't have internet, they don't have computers, they don't have anything. So they come to me, and we put in. It's great. We put in like bids or find out where they, you know, what the prices are and. If it's in a radius of like, I don't know, 100 miles or so, they will actually get a ride there and then drive the tractor back. You know, the transportation is really expensive. Get these things here. And so I'm always scrolling down. They'll go, there, there's one, there's one. Uh, that's exactly what I want. My price range. I'm like, no, you can't have that one. And they're like, why not? And I said, well, that one's in Belize. So, so I filter, I filter these um, tractors for them. Mary told us her online implement dealership is one of the jobs she's lost to COVID this year. We're going to head to Northwest Iowa now to hear from Art Cohen, but don't worry. We'll hear more from Mary in a couple weeks. I'm going to let Art introduce himself. I'm Art Cullen. I'm the editor of Stormlike Times in Stormlike, Iowa. Uh, it's a twice-a-week newspaper uh, with a website, stormlike.com. And uh, in northwest Iowa, Stormlike is a county seat town. Uh, the census says it's about 10,000 people. We think it's closer to 15,000 because of so many undocumented immigrants. Uh, in Storm Lake, which is a food processing community, uh, meat packing. And I, I grew up in Storm Lake. I was born in Storm Lake. 
returned after uh, college and working at a couple other three other, few other newspapers in Iowa, Algona, Ames, and Mason City. And uh, then my brother John started the Stormlight Times in 1990, uh, and I joined him. So John said, uh, you know, why don't you come home and help me with the newspaper? And I did. And that was the reason I came home. I never thought I would ever come home to Storm Lake. When I left in 1975, after graduating from St. Mary's High School, on my way to the College of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, I thought I, I was never coming back to Iowa. I wanted to live in the Twin Cities like so many other young people who from Iowa <laughs> want to leave the state as soon as they can. I would say its biggest strength is uh, even before uh, the wave of immigration was, it was always a very open and tolerant community because it's it's kind of centrally located in Northwest Iowa. It's always been a salesman's town and a college town. And also there were European immigrants who were coming in and working in meatpacking. So you were used to salesmen uh, moving in and out and uh, faculty and staff and students moving in and moving out at Buena Vista and Eastern Europeans coming in and, and getting established in meatpacking. And so it, there was always kind of a transience to Storm Lake that, that made it open and tolerant of different people and, and different ideas, uh, and because it's a college town. So that's really its strength, I think, is its openness and tolerance. Art shows the value and importance of local ownership for communities. Storm Lake is a locally owned community. We're a locally owned newspaper. We have four pretty sizable locally owned banks. So it's, it's a local, it, although we're dominated by Tyson and Walmart uh, and big box stores, we're a retail trade center. A, a community is going to be about as healthy as, as its newspapers and banks are vigorous. And, uh, Storm-like benefits from having uh, these locally owned banks whose only business is investing in Storm-like. And uh, their profits don't go off to Minneapolis or San Francisco or Sioux Falls. They stay here in Storm-like and build housing and businesses. And those banks make contributions to the community, whether it's the United Way or whatever it is. Uh, that you just don't see from the corporate contributors like Walmart or Tyson. And newspapers, there are about two to 300 news deserts in the United States now, towns of 20 to 30,000 people who are abandoned by chain-owned newspapers. And they have no news source now, other than what you get on Facebook, uh, which is a bunch of propaganda and, and distortion. So it makes a huge difference, local news ownership, is everything. Every penny we make goes back into our newspaper, uh, into paying our people more, and we don't pay them enough, or trying to hire more reporters rather than cutting reporters. So I think local versus corporate ownership is everything. It's, it's true in agriculture, where we lost control of the hog industry, and now we have epic environmental problems, rural poverty, uh, that we just simply didn't have when we had independent ownership of livestock, as opposed to 
Wall Street ownership of hogs or Chinese ownership of hogs. Art ties together so many pieces of what we plan to talk about over the coming weeks, from climate change to food systems to employment and other things that really make a community. I asked him about where people in Storm Lake work, and he weaves together so much history and community connection into this answer. Tyson employs over 3,000 people in Storm Lake in its turkey and pork slaughter operations, and uh, the vast majority of those employees are immigrants, and the majority of the immigrant population is Latino, primarily rural from the state of Jalisco. And uh, the other major employers are uh, Buena Vista Regional Medical Center, our hospital and clinics, and uh, which is run by Unity Point out of Des Moines, again, losing local control, and uh, Buena Vista University, uh, which is a small liberal arts college, uh, about a thousand enrollment, which has satellite campuses around the state. Uh, and then education generally is, a, 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 we're a, a, you know, a major, we have a Iowa Central Community College campus here and, and a sizable Catholic and public school systems, healthcare, and then finance, referring to those locally owned banks and insurance. Uh, it's a kind of, we're a regional trade center. While Storm Lake is growing, most of, of, the fourth congressional district, 39 counties in Northwest Iowa are declining in population. In fact, 67 of Iowa's 99 counties are losing population every year. Buena Vista County, we don't say Buena Vista, we say Buena Vista, uh, despite so many Latinos living here. Buena Vista County's uh, population is growing and, uh, because of immigrants uh, and meatpacking. So meatpacking has consolidated through the years, as has agriculture. So that means there's a lot of losers. Uh, Fort Dodge doesn't have a meatpacking plant anymore. Storm Lake uh, has just exploded with, with meatpacking jobs. And so people come here from around the world to get a, a foot on the first rung to the ladder of American success. And uh, they perform incredibly grueling work for marginal wages and uh, limited workplace protections. So it's an interesting uh, study here. This place is growing, although largely with working poor, whereas the rest of rural Iowa is working poor, but declining in population. <laughs> and that's the reality. At first, there was uh, some resentment. The union had been busted. A lot of old union guys saw a lot of Southeast Asian refugees from the Vietnam War coming in. And they're saying, hey, we thought we were fighting those guys in Vietnam. Well, in fact, these people were our fighters. They were Laotian refugees who worked for the CIA and uh, in our several wars in Southeast Asia. And... Uh, Eventually, people got used to that because these Asians just worked hard, uh, you know, paid cash for houses, you know, bunked up three families in a house, whatever it took. And, you know, there's a certain amount of Iowa pragmatism that will respect that, <laughs> you know, and uh, that guy works his ass off. I've got to respect that. Uh, so eventually they got used to it. And then about 1990, there weren't enough Southeast Asians 
to replace the lost Anglo labor as people fled rural Iowa. They used to work in meatpacking. Those, those farm boys that are waiting for their dad to retire would work at the packing house and then help the dad farm. Well, the farm crisis drove everybody to, to Texas to work in the oil fields in Oklahoma. And there was nobody left to work in the packing plants other than the Asians, and they weren't having enough kids. So they started hauling in uh, people from Mexico, uh, from rural Mexico, who uh, were being driven out of business by uh, U.S. corn flooding the, the Jalisco market and putting them out of business, our cheap corn. So then they come up here to slaughter hogs that are fed with that cheap corn <laughs> that drove them out of business. And then we ship that, then that pork is shipped down to Mexico for further processing, where it's then shipped to China or Japan. In 1990, a, a lot of young Latinos started coming up from Jalisco, uh, young men. Then these guys eventually grew up and got married and had kids and, and settled down and realized it's a different way of life here than it is in rural Mexico. And they started fitting into the community better. And the community started embracing them. So it's been a learning process between these cultures and the community. And, and you know, we grow as a result of it. And we become enriched by it. Um, but, you know, there are 30 different languages spoken in Storm Lake. Most children in Storm Lake are bilingual. Uh, so that's a huge advantage for them going out in the world. And then as the community grew accustomed to it, began to embrace its diversity, uh, it really kind of dug in and uh, started uh, really going to bat for immigrants. Uh, we have a pretty unique charter school in Storm Lake. So if you, uh, if you can go to Storm Lake High School for five years and graduate with a high school diploma and a community college degree from Iowa Central for free. Or you can take classes at Buena Vista for free, a private college. And it's, it's a unique charter school setup. And so it's mainly immigrant students and they'll graduate from high school as a trained uh, maintenance technician at, at uh, Tyson. And they'll be rather than making $16 an hour, they might be making 22 bucks an hour. And um, a lot of them uh, are going on now to matriculate through four year educations, thanks to this head start they're getting with a, a two year head start on a four year degree. So it's been a pretty remarkable transformation of the community. And now if we could if we could just get that union back and get those wages up, we could really start cooking with gas, you know? There are two charter school programs in Iowa, and this is the only one involving uh, two and four year colleges for at least 15 years. As an outgrowth of that, then the University of Iowa then established, thanks to Sally Mason herself, the Storm Lake Scholars Program at the University of Iowa, which gives a full ride scholarship to about a dozen first generation uh, collegians from Storm Lake, which is pretty incredible, <laughs> you know. And Buena Vista, uh, by the way, also offers the same deal, a full ride at Buena Vista for four years to uh, first generation college students. The cool thing is 
that like our grandparents' generation, these people don't want to go to the Twin Cities. They want to stay with their families. Unlike our culture, which drives our children away from us and says you must go to, the, to New York to establish yourself. He, these people want to stay with their families. So Storm Lake is now benefiting. For, now we have Latino police officers, Latino. We, we just ran stories this week about a, a woman who's getting her uh, master's degree in education at Buena Vista, Sandra Duque getting her master's degree uh, from Buena Vista, and she's an immigrant, came here, uh, you know, as an immigrant. And uh, we have a Vietnamese girl at 17 who's graduating a year early with her AA degree and is off to study Mandarin Chinese and get a degree in international business at the University of Iowa. Now, for the first year, Storm Lake is now teaching all elementary students who want to uh, they're teaching them in uh, Spanish and English. So, you know, one day you'll do your math in Spanish and the next day you'll do it in English. And uh, so Anglo kids and Latino kids and Asian kids are all having the opportunity to be bilingual. Storm Lake is unique in the way all communities are. Every community has its own personality. It's not unique in its employment opportunities and having large immigrant communities. All across Iowa and the Midwest are meatpacking and manufacturing towns that rely heavily on immigrant labor. Washington, West Liberty, Denison, Perry, Postville, Ottumwa, Waterloo, Muscatine. These are just a few of the towns, big and small, across the state that have large immigrant communities and their own stories of how that shapes their towns. Storm Lake is also not unique in climate change being a threat to the people and industries that call it home. We'll hear from Art again in a few weeks when we talk about climate change and the environment more extensively, but here's a preview. The biggest threat to Storm Lake in every place is climate change. And right now we're in the beginnings of a what could be a multi-decade drought if NASA's Goddard Space Institute is right, and they usually are. Uh, and many uh, of Iowa's top scientists uh, believe that uh, agriculture is in somewhat of an existential crisis. Uh, we're losing soil four to 10 times faster than nature can replenish it. You know, we're subject to epic floods now uh, annually that used to be every 500 years that are causing immense damage to Iowa's crops and livelihoods. And uh, uh, right now we're running low on water in Northwest Iowa, which is the, uh, you know, buckle of the Corn Belt. And this is the, you know, uh, Northern Iowa and Southern Minnesota is where the bulk of the nation's hogs are raised. But we're drawing down our water supplies way faster than they're being replenished. So there, there's some real existential questions about how we move forward with agriculture in Iowa and food. We're going to end on a more positive note. Art describes the 4th of July Star-Spangled Spectacular, which has me thinking again about Washington's Peace March and Imar's comments last week about the great food in Atumwa. Art also brags about the amazing Mexican, Cuban, African, and other foods in Storm Lake. If anyone wants to go on a food tour of Iowa with me, get in touch. All this talk is making me hungry. 
Well, the biggest event of the year, except for last year, last summer, I should say, was the uh, 4th of July parade. It's called the Star Spangled Spectacular. Uh, and it's uh, about, you know, there's about 20,000 people who line up for this parade. Uh, and then every nation that's represented, uh, they carry the flag of their nation and they dress up in uh, ethnic costume. Uh, especially the Asians and uh, Latin Americans. And then, of course, I carry the Irish flag, but I don't dress up as a leprechaun. But, and there's, you know, dancing Mexican horses. That's the, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. And then any food you can imagine from the world is served that day in the parks, you know, and it's authentic uh, from uh, Africa to Cuba you know, the food in Storm Lake is amazing. We have Cuban restaurants, African, Asian, uh, from Hamong to uh, Thai to Laos. Uh, so that, that 4th of July is pretty incredible. And it draws, you know, tens of thousands of people for this parade uh, to watch. Uh, it's called the Parade of Nations. It's pretty cool. I'm Hannah Schultz. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Share Public Health. This was the second of 10 episodes exploring rural life in the Midwest. Please join us again next week as we talk about thriving and growing in rural communities. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.